Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. What's up, y'all? want to welcome you back to the Hunt Stand Podcast, Season 2, and this is your host, Will Cooper. The Hunt Stand Podcast is your weekly source for insightful conversations with veteran hunters, dedicated outdoor enthusiasts, and top industry personnel. I'm going to have guests on here who are true experts in their field, diving into the captivating world of our industry and the great outdoors. With each episode, you, the listener, will receive invaluable knowledge, tips, and guidance on how to enhance your skills in the wild and in life. Tune in to be entertained, informed, and driven to reach new heights. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and their lineup of Model 2020 Waypoint Rifles. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. It's never been easier to go wireless with the Command Pro app. Capture high-quality photos and videos of all the action wherever you hunt with Stealth Cam's advanced cameras and data plans tailored to your needs. So make sure to check out their website today, StealthCam.com. Hunt Stand Podcast Season 2. Buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Let's go. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will, coming back for a new episode of the Unstand Podcast. On today's episode, our guest is going to be Darren McDougall. If you've taken a look at our website, then you've seen a lot of his written work. Darren is a full-time freelance outdoor writer. It's what he does. It's what he loves to do, in addition to chasing after big game across North America with his bow. For today's topic, we're going to be focused on DIY public land turkey hunting. I'm not qualified to talk about that. I live in Texas. I don't have a ton of public land here to do that. So we're going to get this guy on here to give y'all some insight, tips, tactics to go and tackle those public land birds yourself. He's been successful at this, so he's got some really good stuff he can bring to y'all. If this is your first time tuning in to Hunt Stand Podcast, we want to say thank you for tuning in. Make sure 
you hit that subscribe button or the follow button, rate, review, whatever platform you're listening to helps us out. And that way you get notified when the next episode comes out. We also want to say thank you to everyone for the support through season one and then the beginning of season two. It's been awesome. And we're having a blast this season. And if you haven't yet, make sure you got the HuntStand app downloaded. We got free, we got pro, and we got pro whitetail. All you need, though, to chase after birds this spring is pro. So if you haven't yet upgraded to pro, you've got property info, you've got high detailed maps, weather, and more to go put a bird down on the ground this spring. So I'm going to quit rambling, and let's get right to it with our man, Darren McDougal. Got record going over here. All right, dude. All right. You ready to get this thing started? I'm ready. This is the first time I've had you on the podcast, isn't it? It is. Well, Darren, dude, first and foremost, welcome to the Hunt Stand Podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be on here. Yeah, dude. Glad to finally get you on here and talk turkey. You know, we're just talking it's cold up in your area. Nice weather in y'all's terms is a little bit of snow on the ground over here down in Texas. It's nice, warm, 70, 80 degrees. And so, uh, man, today we're going to talk turkey hunting public land. But before we get into that, what I like to do to get each podcast started is I like for the guests to give the listeners kind of that 30 foot tree stand view of who you are, man. So, I mean, just kind of tell us who you are, where you're from and kind of how you've gotten to where you are in life today. Yeah. So, um, I'm a full-time freelance outdoor writer. Uh, I live in Wisconsin. I'm married to my best friend and public land hunting is uh what gets my blood going i i love to i love the diy angle i love putting in the work and doing what it takes to get the result and uh yeah it's it's not an easy life being a freelancer you gotta really grind it out and i think a lot of people misconceive that we you know all we do is hunt and you know i'm fortunate to get to spend a lot of time hunting in the fall and in the spring but what people don't see from the outside looking in is the hours and hours behind the computer to actually bring that content to life, you know, whether it's a written piece or whether it's a a video piece, whatever it might be. So um, what drives me uh, in the the DIY public land thing is Western big game specifically. Uh, I know that's not necessarily the topic today, but love elk hunting, Mm -hmm. love Western whitetail hunting, antelope, mule deer, um, I just love the wide open spaces and honestly, um, I'm very happily married, but if I wasn't, I probably would have moved out West, you know, quite some time ago, just cause I, I truly love it that much. And we're fortunate though, to, to get to live around family here in Wisconsin and then get to make several trips out West to kind of scratch that itch that I really love so much about the Western States. So that's kind of, kind of a little bit about me. Dude, I'm right there with you, man. If I was a single guy, I would have been out west years ago. But, you know, we're kind of in the same boat. You know, we've got family here. So when you have a kid, it makes things a lot easier. So Yeah. So in, in Texas, I'm curious. There's there's not a lot of public land in comparison to some of these western states. So what does that kind of look like for you when you, you know, when you want to go turkey hunting or, or whatever? Man, it honestly kind of sucks. Um you know, being a resident, you know, and just seeing what you guys have up there and like even in the Western States, what there's a, what there is available for public land. I'm pretty envious of, uh, I am very fortunate that my wife's great aunt, her godmother, who her name is Nana, which we actually just did a hunt stand original on. Uh, she owns some property, so I'm pretty reluctant to get to go and hunt on that. Uh, and then I do have friends here that, 
turkey hunting, it's not so much of a big deal to them. So I have a pretty easy access to turkey hunting down here. But when it comes to whitetail, man, uh, that's a whole different ball game. Uh, I've been putting in for public land here in Texas for seven years now, and I have yet to draw a tag. It's hmm. it's insane. Like I, I've put in for, I don't know how many different tags. I usually spend about we can for for each uh each application we want to put into depending on whether it's like a rifle mule deer or archery wm wma somewhere here in the state i put in like 50 60 dollars worth of tags wow. each one valued at about three a pop and uh i haven't drawn yet man so fingers crossed wow. that maybe this year or next year will be my year i don't know but uh yeah it's tough and so you you gotta you gotta know somebody or have the land yourself yeah yeah, that does make it tough. You know, around here, there's some pretty large chunks of public. And then, of course, there's some other um, private lands that are open for public mm-hmm. access, kind of like uh, managed forest lands um, here in, in Wisconsin. And then like out in South Dakota and uh, some of the other Western states, there's the walk-in program. And that really makes it easy. And and yeah. HuntStand definitely makes it really easy for people to go and uh, explore some of those opportunities and really find what's available to, mm-hmm. to go and hunt on. Yeah, dude, absolutely. And yeah, we, we've got a few, few walk-in access areas here, but they are far and few between like the one that comes to my head is, uh, there's a piece around, uh, Lake Amistad down in Del Rio, which is a border town of Mexico that yeah. it's, it's bow hunt only. There's no motorized access. It's you park at the highway and you go in. Uh, so yeah. there, there's a couple like that, but yeah, all those Westerners out there and all you Western guys are listening right now. Y'all are very fortunate. So, but uh, yeah, but yeah, man, well, let's get into it, dude. Turkey hunting, public land. I want to find out from you because a, I want to go do this myself. I have yet to hunt turkeys on public land. So I really want to pick your brain more or less for, uh, you know, selfish reasons here. I want to find out what you do and how you do it. And so when it comes to chasing these public birds, I mean, what's what's step numero uno for you, man? Well, it's all about habitat, right? Um, I Whether I hunt on public land or private land for turkeys, I always have the mindset that it's not going to happen where there isn't a bird. Yeah. You know, birds can travel. You know, that's, that's important to know. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to sit in a ground blind for... A whole day you know i've got <laughs> i've got way too much energy to do something like that i have done that in the past and i've tried to make something happen in a place where it's just not going to happen now last year it might have happened there or next year it might but right now if it's not hot i'm not going to spend a lot of time there so the first part is really honing in on or homing in on some habitat that that really affords uh turkey um, activity. You know, I want to, I want to look for places that have roost trees. I want to look for places that have agriculture and, or I call them wood snacks, uh, acorns and things like that. So that's number one. I want to, I want to have several different options that I can pop in and out of. And if there's not gobbling action, um, I'm moving on. I I keep, keep moving until I find something I like. So I want to, talk about you know you're, you're looking for these roosting trees and these wood snack you know how are you obviously boots on the ground it's a different story you can visually see it you find it but 
you know, for a lot of people, they may not have ever stepped foot on some of this public land. So how are you identifying some of this habitat that you're talking about with the roost trees, with, you know, finding some of these oaks or acorns? Like, how are you identifying that on hunt stand before you step foot in the woods? So obviously, um, you know, looking at the overview of a property, you can kind of tell by the, the hybrid map, if you use that one or one of the satellite maps, you can usually kind of tell the size of the timber, mm-hmm. um, not, not, you know, down to the exact height or anything like that, but right. you can definitely distinguish larger trees most of the time from, from smaller trees. And you can obviously uh, a lot of times, de- you know, decipher between um, evergreens and deciduous trees. And not that turkeys don't roost in deciduous trees. They absolutely do. Um, you know, hardwoods are great for turkeys, but I've found a lot of times if I can find a, a stand of red pines, turkeys love red pines. They're, really? um, they're easy to, to fly up into for one thing. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing is they provide some of that, um, like that thermal cover while they're up there on the roost. Um, yeah. It's just a really good tree for turkeys to roost. in. so a lot of times I look for those if they're, you know, common in the area where I'll be hunting. Um, now food, obviously the crop history layer or crop history map, uh, is a great option to figure out kind of what's on the outskirts of some of these potential roosting areas. And so, you know, it, it gives, obviously, as you know, it gives the the planting from the previous year. So it might not be exactly relevant to, to right now, mm-hmm. but I at least know that, you know, that there's agriculture in the area and there's potential for there to be some food that turkeys are going to be, you know, kind of drawn to. So that's kind of how I navigate the, the roost uh, areas and potential food on the outskirts. Now, a lot of times people think the food's got to be right, you know, on the public land. And, and in some cases it is, and obviously that helps, but if it's on the outskirts on adjacent private land, that can be equally as good because those birds, a lot of times will go and feed in the agriculture on private land, but a lot of times they roost on the public land where the timber is. So that's something to keep in mind. And that's definitely something that I follow when I'm kind of navigating this whole, yeah. this whole process. Okay. Okay. Now, what about, uh, ter- are there any specific terrain features you're looking at? Like, are you looking for saddles, uh, any kind of, anything in specific that may hold birds compared to others? I think the the biggest thing, and, and maybe it's not so much a terrain feature um, as it is uh, a necessity, but I look for rivers especially out West when I'm, you know, going on some of the, the bigger tracks of public land, I'm looking mm-hmm. for that riparian habitat where there's, you know, potential to be big cottonwood trees, you know, along those, those river corridors and turkeys love that, you know, they need the water, but also the the roost trees that often are located along the, the perimeter. It's great for whitetails. It's great for turkeys. It's just a it's just oh, yeah. a, a wildlife magnet usually. So mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest things I look for. Now, my strategy is quite different from what you see if you watch some of the, you know, the DIY YouTubers. A lot of the times they're just setting up, you know, where they call a turkey to the top of a hill. You know, they they basically make the turkey come looking for them, right? Yeah. Where I'm using decoys almost all the time. Now, when I, when I shotgun hunt and I got a bird spotted and I think I can cut them off, then I'll leave the decoys, you know, behind, but I'm using decoys at least 80% of the time. And when I bow hunt, which I do a lot of bow hunting for turkeys, 
I use them a hundred percent of the time for, for bow hunting. So what that means is I'm not setting up in the thick cover. Usually mm -hmm. I'm looking for open areas. I'm looking for fields, uh, food plots, if they're available on, on, you know, like the DNR lands or the, the game and fish, you know, uh, lands, federal lands, whatever, you know, if there's plantings on there, I'm looking at setting up in some of those areas with better visibility so that when I call and a bird comes out in the open, he can see the decoys from a distance, kind of assess and evaluate things before he comes in. And a lot of times I find that birds are way more comfortable with approaching decoys they can see from a distance. So now kind of on the terrain um, aspect of that, that's where, you know, using hunt stand to kind of figure out where the tallest part of that clearing or, or field is mm -hmm. that's where I want to set up because I know that my decoys are going to be visible from the most places. One other reason is that I've never decoyed a turkey downhill. Um, for whatever reason, you know, I hear guys that are really good elk hunters and I do a lot of elk hunting myself, but, um, the, some of the best elk hunters, they, they call those bulls downhill. Um, but turkeys for whatever reason, they are more prone to be called uphill or decoyed uphill. So I'm setting up on the highest point I can find in that open area. Man, it's funny you say that. Cause I podcasted with somebody last year that talked about that and I, I'd never heard of that. And then I, I started thinking back to all the times that I've turkey hunted here in Texas. And I started thinking about, you know, some situations that I've run into like that. And I'm like, Oh, it does make sense. I, I don't know why I couldn't tell you. I'll have to get somebody on here that could tell us. Yeah. So. Maybe, maybe it's as simple as the eyesight, you know, elk don't have that great eyesight to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you see guys set up, they, they say set up in front of a tree, don't set up behind it. Mm -hmm. And as long as your outline is disrupted, you're fine with elk turkeys. They don't miss anything. I mean, no. you blink your eye and they can take off sometimes. So maybe it's just the, you know, just the fact that if they're up on a high spot looking down and they don't, you know, they don't see a bird, you know, obviously if you have decoys that helps, but if they're, you know, if you're hunting without decoys or something and they can see down there and they don't see a bird, but they hear the calling, I mean, it's kind of, kind of, uh, you know, obvious why they might get suspicious, I suppose, yeah. you know, where an elk, you know, they just don't have that great eyesight. So I'm not a, not an expert on animal eyesight, but that, that could be a potential reason. You never know, man, never know. So, all right. So we've kind of talked about the things you're looking at before you even step foot on the public land, right? We've talked about the e-scouting things you're looking for, uh, terrain features. So let's talk about boots on the ground. You know, you're, you're dealing with public land, so you're going to deal with traffic. So what are you doing opening morning when you've spent a ton of time, boots on the ground, you've identified where the birds are, and you feel great about this place, this spot, you get to the trailhead parking lot, and it is chocked full of other hunters. What do you do? Okay, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good point to talk on. So um, one time down in Florida on a non-quota wildlife management area, that did happen. There were actually, I think, 12 different vehicles parked there, and I got there well before daylight. Now, in that situation, so much of the property was, you know, underwater that mm -hmm. I kind of was limited to where I could hunt. So I, I went hunting anyway, ended up seeing a Jake, and that was about it. I did hear someone else shoot. Um, so in that case, I just went hunting anyway. Typically, that doesn't happen in Wisconsin, believe it or not, even though, you know, we're a fairly populous state. Uh, 
you know, there might be one vehicle once in a while, yeah. two at the very most, but I don't run into that a whole lot. But if I was to show up, you know, to fill in the blank management area and there were six vehicles and I knew that I had plenty of other places I could pop into, I'm just going to keep driving. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go in there for one. I think that it's, you know, kind of that unspoken rule that first come first serve. Yeah. And if I feel like, you know, a property's already at capacity with who's there, I'm, I'm not going to go in and try to jeopardize someone else's hunt. And, you know, I would hope that people would kind of do that same thing for me too. I, you know, I, I think about an antelope hunt that I was on out in Wyoming and uh, you could see across this walk-in area where I had spotted, you know, a bunch of antelope the day before. And I, I went in there specifically for those antelope the next morning and I got parked. I was there first and I started actually stalking toward these antelope. And all of a sudden I see a Tahoe or a Suburban or something pull up and all of a sudden these two guys get out and this was a rifle hunt. And next thing I see, you know, the orange going across the prairie, they're going at the same antelope that I'm going after, oh, even though I was there first and clearly stalking those antelope. They And they busted them out. So they ruined not only my hunt, but their own hunt because they, you know, they didn't go about it the right way. So I know this is about turkeys, but that's just kind of hammers on the concept of just be respectful. I mean, we're all out there trying to do the same thing. And uh, if, if a property is at capacity, you know, in that case it was because you can see across it. Um, and I was already out there just, just have respect for other people. And, and a lot of times, you know, what goes around comes around. If you respect other people, they'll respect you. Dude, absolutely. And I think, uh, I'm not going to deviate from it, but definitely like a message to everybody listening out there, like respect other people, especially when you pull up to the trailhead and, you know, I had, I had a similar situation like yours, uh, this past year in Colorado chasing after elk during archery season we had got to the trailhead and we were the only truck and, you know, it was just starting to become daybreak. We're like, oh, awesome. First one here. We're going to get in and get a crack at these elk before it goes nuts. Cause everybody knows Colorado public land can be insane. Yeah. Just as I thought that here comes a camp, not far from where we were camped, five old dudes in a truck screaming up in their GMC and, Literally, I mean, there was maybe enough parking space for an ATV in front of my truck because I parked right at the trailhead, and they pulled up in that spot right in front, and they get out, and they just we're all just kind of looking at each other like, what's going on? And, yeah, it wasn't a good situation. But, yeah, to everybody out there, I mean, I think the big thing, you see something like that, do exactly what you just said, man, and that's if you see trucks there, you got the vehicles there, more than likely you got to plan B, C, and D go to the next one. Yeah. Or the other thing is, you know, you can, you, you can kind of predict how people are going to hunt a piece of public land. Um, yeah. Another, another guy in the industry and I were talking about that on a, on an interview recently mm-hmm. that uh, if there's a, a trail or trailhead um, two track, whatever going in beyond the gate, you can kind of expect that most people are going to be within half a mile of there mm-hmm. and maybe within 200 to 250 yards, maybe 300 yards off that trail. So if you use that trail as kind of a tree and then you imagine like branches off every so often, that could be kind of a pattern that you could expect a lot of people to be hunting. How many people are going to walk parallel to the road right from the parking area through the woods and hunt 10, 20 yards, whatever the legal distance is 
off from the road, not very many people because they're under the impression that you got to get in there. You know, you got to, mm-hmm. you got to follow the trail that, that, you know, the DNR or whoever put in there. And, um, you know, I think it's just, it just comes down to maybe you can hunt that same spot and just hunt it differently. But, you know, by all means, if you, if you bump into someone, just get out of there and, and respect yeah. that they got there first. So yeah, there's, there's ways to navigate around it and still have a, a successful hunt. And, you know, sometimes I always think of it as God's way of redirecting me to a better opportunity, you know, to learn something that I want to learn if I would have gone in, you know, and gone on my plan A. So there's, you know, there's merits to, to getting rerouted sometimes. That's a good way to look at it. That's a good way. So you've gone past the trailhead, you've gone to plan B, you park, you're the first one there, you start going in. What's kind of your plan of attack from there? Uh, you, you know, it's, it's still dark, you stopping and listening to gobbles, or are you going straight into where you're assuming that they're roosting based off of some of your e-scouting? Yeah, I'm going in with a particular uh, destination in mind where I think there's going to be birds, but I don't go tromping so fast that I walk past birds. You know, mm-hmm. I'm if it's if I've never been to the property before and I don't really have a finger on the pulse of how the birds, you know, their kind of daily routine or their exact roost area, or even if there's birds at all, I'm going in. Um, it's it's a mix of passive and aggressive. You know, you you definitely want to get to that spot that you have a really good feeling about because I've I've been turkey hunting for over 20 years now. So I have a lot of history to go off from on different situations and and a lot of times I'm pretty pretty close and not too far off on, you know, what birds might be doing, even if I've never been on the property. Yeah. But I don't want to have that hammered in so, you know, so deep that I forget um you know, to be cautious in other areas where maybe you don't expect a bird to roost. Cause you know, who knows, maybe the day before somebody spooked a bird or something, he ended up roosting in this oddball spot because he got spooked from his typical roost. So, um, I'm definitely being cautious and stopping to listen, but then if I start hearing a bird off in the distance, I'm not worried about making noise. I'm going to get there. Um, once I get within, you know, 200 yards or so, obviously that's the time to slow down and, and start stalking closer. If, if you need to get closer, obviously you can call mm. a bird in from that far a lot of times, but if, you know, if I can get within 80 yards because of the terrain or something, I'm going to, I'm going to get that close before I set up and call. So that's kind of my strategy. I, I do use uh, the owl hoot. I've, I'm able to do that, you know, just with my mouth and I do use that to locate toms, but most often if it's not, you know, too windy. I can usually just hear them gobbling on their own from yeah. daybreak. Um, obviously some turkeys in some areas are more vocal than others. Um, I'm fortunate here where if there's a bird, you know, roosted, he's usually gobbling on his own. I don't usually have to coax him into it. So yeah. that's kind of, kind of what I do in a nutshell. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's kind of your morning approach. Uh, are you, are you the kind of guy that you're camped in, you're staying, not necessarily, I'm not, when I say camped in, I'm not talking about like putting camp on your back and going in. I mean, if you do that, love to hear about it. But what I mean is you're going in and you're staking them out all day. You're going after some of those midday birds at midday madness. Have you found any success in doing that? I, I usually don't 
marry myself to one property. Mm-hmm. You know, if I go in there and they're not gobbling, I usually don't just sit there and wait. That doesn't mean that birds aren't going to come through there midday. But what I usually do if if I'm not hearing anything or if I was on a bird and he just flat out, you know, didn't want to play and, and went on to private land or something like that, I'm getting out of there and I'm going to mm-hmm. go to plan A, plan B or plan B, plan C, you know, and so on until I've exhausted what I feel every effort, you know, by let's say 10 o'clock in the morning. And then, um, I will hunt, you know, sometimes that midday is just awesome. Once they break off from the hens at certain points of the season. Uh, so definitely I hunt, you know, all points of the day, but I don't marry myself to one property. Um, I also have an e-bike. So where that's legal, I can cover Mm -hmm. a lot of ground. I've got a box call. I've got, I, I mostly use my mouth calls cause those I can, I can run really loud too. Yep. But what I do is I'll ride 75 yards, stop, listen for a minute, and then I'll rip off some calls, you know, that can be heard from a long distance. And if, if I don't hear gobble, I'll wait, you know, maybe a few more seconds and I'll do some real uh, loud cutting and then yelping, nothing gobbles down the trail. I go, and I'm, covering a lot of ground until I get one to gobble. But now when one gobbles and especially in that mid morning to midday time frame, yeah, man, set up quick because I've had them come in stupid fast, Dude. you know, to the point where it's just a wonder that I even got set up because they were just boom, they're in. Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. You know, you might not kill one right off the roost. Like we all imagine, you know, that picture perfect scene, but there's definitely a lot of, midday birds to be had for those who have the option you know if you got to go to work it's one thing but if you have have some time definitely go and hit up multiple different parcels and man sometimes you can fill a tag that way yeah dude that that happened to me last year it was early morning they were pretty quiet as towards the end of the season and uh for whatever reason i don't know why these birds were in an area that they were one sounded off and i was like man sounded pretty far so called at him again and he had cut the distance by quite a bit and i mean no sooner than i sat down and i've got if it's on film it was on a turkey posse episode last year on on the hunt stand page this dude just comes screaming in straight to the decoy and he was hot to trot he was ready to play and uh he got a a face full of tss so end of story on that one but you know, I want to talk to you about your decoy strategy uh, because I feel like that's another big inhibitor when it comes to public land. I mean, obviously, there's decoys out there that you know are very packable, but then for some of those that really want to use the lifelike decoys, like your avian X's that are just money. I mean, what decoys are you taking them in? What what decoys are you taking in, and what is your ideal setup? So, what I mean is, are you taking in? like a breeder hen and a Jake, are you taking in just a Tom? Like what is usually strapped to your back? So I usually, my, my go-to decoy spread is one hen and one, uh, like a three quarter strut Jake Mm -hmm. or maybe half strut Jake, I guess it would be. Uh, I have with a bow, with a shotgun, I have shot so many, toms over that setup yeah and i know a lot of guys get hung up and you know they they think you gotta take a whole flock and you know that works too but i've also even just shot toms by putting out that half strut jake there's just something about it just triggers something in them 
to come and fight. I can't tell you, I, I lost the, the metal stake that my Jake decoy came with. So I use arrows now, <laughs> um, just grab a random arrow out of the garage or whatever yeah. that I've got laying around. And I've had multiple arrows broken from Tom's coming and hitting that decoy. Holy and crap. it's not only effective to get the birds within range, yeah. but they get so in tune with that decoy that, I mean, I've, I, I have drawn my bow back with their eyeballs in sight because they're just so tuned in on, you know, beating up that decoy. Typically I do wait until their head passes behind something or if their fan is, you know, blocking their head, mm-hmm. of course, mm-hmm. but there's been, I think a couple times where, I mean, they're just, there was no reason to wait any longer because they were just flat out gonna beat the tar out of that decoy so i don't see any sense in taking you know four or five decoys especially those realistic decoys like you're talking about the avians and and some of the other you know hard molded decoys uh you know it's two of them has been very very effective and i don't need anyone to prove to me that that you know two or three more of them would be any kind of benefit because I'd say my response rate with that setup, if I get a Tom to see that decoy spread it at least 80% of the time he's coming in. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've done. So that was kind of one of the things I wanted to talk to you about next because you know, everybody's got their different ways of decoy spreads, what they like to use, what they don't like to use. Have you seen with like that half strut Drake, have you ever dealt with Tom's hanging up because they see that and they feel intimidated by that Jake at all? Very few times. Yeah. Um, I did have it happen. I did a, what's called a, well, it's like a depredation hunt up here in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I assume that maybe, uh, maybe some other people had been hunting that property pretty hard because I had a Tom gobbling really hard. I think he broke off hens. Yeah. Cause I remember hearing the hens yelping and stuff. And, um, I was in this, this really neat pinch point. It would have been a great spot to sit during the rut for deer. It was like two field corners came together, but they were separated by an 80 yard, you know, swath of timber. Dang. And so it was like a perfect like funnel area. So I sat up in there thinking I could call him into there, which I did. And he got, to 80 yards where he saw the the decoy and I was in the timber most of the times when I'm talking about these birds coming in and beating up the decoy I'm usually sitting in the wide open in the middle of a field you know with a ground blind or if I'm hunting without a blind I'll sit on the edge and just put the decoys out in the field Mm -hmm. so I don't know if it if you know if it was in the timber you know he reacted differently or if it was that he was hunted a lot I'm not sure what the case was but those are few and far between, man. They they usually just come screaming in. Yeah. Okay. What's your call volume like whenever you're out on public land? Because I feel like there's some guys that, you know, we're some guys are getting out there as loud as they can. Some are going quiet because their their thought process is that if uh, hunter, other hunters are calling louder, that the birds got that figured out, so they're gonna call softer and try and trick the bird. Hey, what's kind of your approach? I know you you talked about, you know, essentially the cat road shuffle with your e-bike, but what's your process or, you know, thoughts on call volume? So when I'm trying to locate a bird, like I was talking before, I'm loud. You know, mm-hmm. I want I want to not only for him to hear that hen yelping, but for it to be loud enough that he almost shock gobbles in a sense. So I call I call pretty darn loud when when I'm trying to locate a bird. Now when I'm working him in I'll scale back 
quite a lot uh, for a few reasons. I feel like if he can hear me, there's no need to, you know, just melt his face off with this loud calling. So I'll, yeah. I'll tame it back a little bit. And then I just kind of see how he reacts as he's coming in. Um, I've had, I got to, I got to outline one bird that in particular that I shot in on public land here in Wisconsin. I actually spotted him out on a private field that was bordering the, the uh, public parcel that I actually shot him on. So this was interesting. He was out there with a hen and, and it was late season. It was late in May. And I thought, he's probably just going to stay with her because, you know, most of the other hens are already nesting and yeah. he's got her. So why would he, you know, why would he leave? I had to throw the kitchen sink at that bird and I'm not saying call volume. So I worked that bird for probably an hour and a Jeez. few times he came closer and I was just kind of like, I'd move around a little bit in the woods yeah. so that I was, you know, giving him a little bit of a different angle. Get this. I even climbed up a pine tree just on the limbs <laughs> And, and looked through my binoculars to see if he was still out there. Cause for a while he went silent. I thought, okay, maybe he's gone. Well, I climbed up that pine tree and I was back in the timber far enough where he couldn't, you know, see the movement. Yeah. And I, I go really slow. I'm super stealthy that way. I spotted him out there. So I thought, okay, he's still out there. So in that case, um, I started calling then from a different location once again, and he started responding and coming closer, but then he just, he just would not come you know, inside the timber. I could not get him to poke his head inside there. Mm. So I totally shut up, gave him the silent treatment. And typically that works with him. It did not work. He still just kind of stayed there. Like, come, you know, come out to me. I'm, I'm as close as I'm going to come. So in that case, you know what I do? I start scratching leaves if there's leaves around and uh. that is the deadliest call. If they got, if they're hung up and, it's it's almost like you get under their skin by stopping your your yelping and just scratching. Yeah, man, it's a deadly call, dude. But that, I, yeah, he he poked in the woods and I I shot him at about forty five yards and nice big limb hanger. Heck yeah, dude! Bower or shotgun? That was shotgun. Yeah, nice, nice. Man, that's like uh, it's like raking a tree with elk or rattling with yeah. deer. It's like yeah, same same thought process. Yep. So, and not very many people do that. You know, if you run into uh, other hunters on public land, you can, you can usually hear what type of call they're using. Just, <laughs> you can hear the the friction call scraping and you can, oh, yeah. you know, hear the, the paddle scraping if it's a box call. Um, you know, people just kind of wear out the same calls over and over and, you know, you got to kind of put yourself in their world a little bit and think, mm -hmm. you know, what, what can I give them that's, exactly what they're used to but that other hunters aren't constantly doing and so that's that stuff works I like it dude uh, speaking of other hunters how do you utilize pressure from those other hunters to try and kill a bird like have you let hunters bring a bird to you or you know how have you honestly just attacked the pressure yeah um I guess, you know, if I'm elk hunting, I'm usually on national forest where there's thousands of acres and everything you see is public all around you. So if, if I'm calling to an elk and I know some other people are also calling, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to just back off entirely. I feel like, you know, being in the area, you know, if that bull comes to me, you know, it's, it's fair game. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to jeopardize someone else's hunt and try to 
cut them off or anything like that. I'm not going to do that. But, you know, here uh, in the Midwest, especially where I live, the parcels are much smaller. And so if I have, you know, an inclination that somebody else is, is hunting a bird, uh, I usually just back right out, man. I I don't want to have any interaction. And, and quite frankly, you know, we're hunting with shotguns for spring Mm -hmm. Turkey. I don't want to be potentially in the line of fire or anything like that. So I usually just back out. Um, I can't think of any particular instances when pressure actually brought a bird to me. Uh, one time I do remember my brothers, this was many years ago. Uh, my oldest brother was actually kind of hunting a bird on foot with his bow, trying to, you know, trying to work it. Cause it didn't come to the, the ground blind setup that he had. Yeah. My other brother was set up in a different field, probably at least a half a mile away. And as my older brother was dogging after this bird and it kept moving away from him, but gobbling, it was getting closer and closer to my other brother. And it ended up going right out into that field and going into his decoys and he hammered it with his bow. So, you know, stuff like that could happen, but uh, that's the only case I think, um, you know, that I can draw from where that's actually, you know, brought a bird to someone when, when someone else was kind of pushing it or whatever. Yeah. So in regard to your public land philosophy, if you will, you pretty much like to be, try to be the first one, be the first one at the trailhead. So, you know, early bird gets the worm essentially. And then, you know, you're on e-bike a lot doing essentially the cat road shuffle. So you try to take that road less traveled, don't you? And get away from the pressure. Yeah. The e-bike lets you get deeper into the parcel than, mm. uh, you know, than a lot of people are willing to go. So that's an advantage. Um, and then the other thing is I'm, I'm not going to be limited to a road, you know, an e-bike can go over some sticks and even I've, I don't know if it's advised, but I've driven over some small logs and stuff like that, as long yeah. as it doesn't hit the the chain guard and things like that. But I'm not married to the trails. I, you know, if I have a hunch about something, you know, if I got to go cut right through hardwoods to get over to where, you know, a, a piece of public meets some agriculture where I've been seeing birds or, or where I think there might be birds on that agriculture, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm just going to ditch the e-bike and stash it somewhere and and kind of like you said take the road less traveled and get to where i think i need to be to fill a tag um it's it's almost stupid what lengths i'll go to be successful i remember times this this is this is fringing on the edge of insanity i remember times just being covered in mosquitoes and because the tom was gobbling what i felt like you know within eyesight of me i couldn't see him necessarily but I had so many mosquitoes that I not only, I, I could hardly hear, but if I was to like, just hit my knee like that, I kid you not, I would have had, you know, 10, 15 of them just with one little swat. And I'm Sheesh. sitting there getting, you know, just drilled by these mosquitoes. And because there's a palm goblin right there, I'm not moving. I'm just enduring this, this mosquito onslaught basically. So, nope. you know, maybe I'm not the, the, the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but I do fill a lot of tags by doing things, you know, just being willing to suffer a little bit and mm-hmm. do things like that. You know, it's funny you say that. It's kind of one of those things, like whenever I'm out west chasing after elk and stuff, I'm I'm constantly in my head, like yelling at myself, like do what others won't so you can do what others can't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if, if you keep that in your mind, I mean, I feel like it's going to lead you to places where, you know, giant birds, giant elk, giant deer are, man. 
Yeah, it it totally it totally does. You know, I can point to a lot of different scenarios over the years where that has been the case. Um, goes back to what I said earlier. You can kind of predict how ninety percent of the hunters are going to attack a piece of public land, mm-hmm. and then just try to do things differently. And a lot of times, that's all you need to do to be successful. Yeah, because I mean, if you think about it, just doing something different. I mean, those animals are moving away from them because they hear them, they see them, they know that there's pressure. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good way to look at it is just thinking about what you can do differently from everybody else. So yeah, that would put you yeah, in the, exactly. right, the right spot. Well, man, I know mm-hmm. we're running, we're running out of time here. So kind of give the listeners any last minute golden nuggets that you might have when it pertains to Turkey land or when it pertains to Turkey hunting on public land. Um, I think, you know, we did touch on it earlier, but I can't hammer home enough the, the concept of, um, stick with it. And even if you don't stay on one property, once it gets to be, you know, nine o'clock in the morning, just being out there, you know, everyone wants to go back to the, you know, the local restaurant and have breakfast or, or whatever. And it's like, you know, just a lot of times you can get into birds mid morning. Um, it's happened a lot of times to me. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is master the mouth call, the ability to call without making any movement. Uh, you know, sometimes you get a bird that's at, uh, you know, 50 yards and your shotgun's good to 40, you know, for people shooting stuff. That's not, you know, the TSS and all the tight ch- choke tubes and all that. Um, the ability to give just a little purr or a little cluck, you know, a lot of times calms them down and you don't have to make any movement to do it. Yeah. You know, it's a game changer. If you had to reach down and pick up your, your uh, pot call or your box call or your push button, whatever it might be, you're, you're you know, you can't do that because you're going to spook them the moment you move your hand. So figure out the mouth call. Um, don't choke on them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people have the gag reflex or whatever. And, uh, you know, I guess don't get too mad at it either. You know, it, it's, it's like, uh, throwing a football or shooting an arrow, you know, in a bullseye, not everybody can, can do it the same way or, or as effectively, but if you can spend enough time with it, um, watch enough tutorials and stuff like that, I think most people can eventually figure out the mouth call and man, it's a game changer, especially if you're hunting without a ground blind, it's, it's. I, I rarely carry other calls if I'm, you know, hunting without a ground blind. It's just easier to to be mobile. Um, that's another thing. You don't have the box call with the paddle you know, making noise or rattling yeah. around, you know, just, just a more mobile setup all around. And I, I truly think that uh, mouth calls are the most realistic as well. Um, once you figure out how to use them, they, it sounds like a real turkey. Yeah, absolutely. So less is more. Less is yeah. more. Yep, I believe that. I love it, man. Well, Darren, tell all the listeners real quick where they can find you on social media or any of your latest work. Yeah, so my handle is uh, McDougal Hunting on Instagram. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, and uh, I sell articles to whoever will buy them. So I'm pretty well uh, immersed into the bow hunting titles, specifically uh, Bow Hunter Magazine. I have a column in Bow Hunting World. I do some stuff for a trade magazine called Archery Business mm-hmm. and multiple, multiple different uh, online channels. Uh, Peterson's Bow Hunting uh, online, uh, bowhunting.com, realtree.com. You know, there's there's a, a lot of different places. So I guess if someone took an interest in wanting to see what I write about, uh, go on Google and just search my name, spell it right. It's D-A-R-R-O-N. Uh, most people it's with a E-N. Yep. So 
uh, get the spelling right. And you'll see lots of different links to, to my work that I've uh, recently published. And I think you'll enjoy it. I try to be as genuine as possible. Um, I think that's the only way to live life, be genuine. Mm -hmm. And so um, what you, what you read of mine is, is true to the fullest extent of my knowledge. And that's how I do things. I, I write, a, write about um, things that I'm, that I'm good at and, and that I'm, you know, skilled at. And then I also do a lot of writing on uh, what other people are successful doing. Uh, I do a lot of big buck stories for like Realtree and stuff like that. And it's really put me in contact with a lot of uh, a lot of different makes and models of people. And I've learned so much over the years by by doing those those interviews, you know, for articles. So, yeah, if you you find an interest in wanting to see where I'm at, just Google my name and you'll find all kinds of stuff. Sweet, dude. Man, I appreciate your time today and hopping on the Huntsman podcast with me. Yeah, thanks, Will. It was a pleasure. All right, y'all, there you go. Hopefully you'll be able to take some nuggets from McDougal himself and go chase after these public land birds and find yourself some success. And we just want to thank you again for tuning in Hunt Stand Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one.